0: So while many modern values, what we could call Western values, values in our modern world, follow our traditional Jewish values, in fact, as we've done, explained in previous classes, many values that we have today are based on Jewish values. However, there are certain values that are normal in our culture today, that are foreign to Judaism, or very different from our Jewish values. There are places where our modern values and our Jewish values diverge. There has always been times in history when values um, of the day outside of the Jewish community diverged from Jewish values. I think over time they have come closer to our values. In fact, many Western values were built on Jewish values, value of life, the value of personal um, property, the value respecting respecting every person, um, uh, um, treating, not harming animals, or not um, mistreating animals. So a lot of not wasting, a lot of these are Jewish values that have become normal Western values. But there are certain things in Western culture that does not match up with our Jewish values. And I think perhaps the most notable and most consequential clash between, Our culture and our Jewish values is the interaction between men and women and dress of men and women, or what we can call the rules of tseniot in Hebrew, which roughly translates as modesty. In Western society in general, and this is particularly true in the United States more than other Western countries, men and women co-mingle for just about everything. From school, from at all ages, to work, to entertainment, to social events, to just about everything men and women commingle together. We separate men and women only in very, very few things in our current society. Separate bathrooms, separate changing rooms, different sport leagues, but that's about it. And even that's under assault. So there are, in our culture, there are very few cultural limits placed on the interaction or the connection between men and women outside of marriage Um, except for some very explicit sexual actions um, there is very little limits placed on the norm of the interaction between men and women in Western culture. But in our Jewish values and our Jewish society there has always been and our Jewish values our Torah tells us there should be a very clear separation between men and women. Not only historically are men and women separated in the synagogue and that is a separate discussion on its own um, a topic on its own that we did a class on once but men and women historically and traditionally have been separated within the Jewish community in schools with separate schools for boys and girls at weddings separating men and women so in social settings men and women have been separated historically in the Jewish community in traditional Jewish communities that still live by the traditional Jewish culture boys and girls go to separate schools have separate social events and social clubs, and rarely interact or mingle throughout their years of adolescence and even into early adulthood, only socializing when they actually date for marriage. But outside, until that point, they rarely, boys and girls, rarely socialize with each other in the traditional Jewish communities. And that is the way Jewish communities have lived for thousands of years. Judaism also places very strict rules on the interaction between men and women outside of marriage. Putting limits on physical displays of affection, like hugging Kissing and even touching between men and women. Judaism also has very strict rules on unmarried men and women being alone together. An unmarried man and woman who are not part of their immediate family may never be alone together in a room, in a house, in an apartment, they may never be alone together. These rules can sometimes, given that. Our society places very little limits on the interaction between men and women and the physical connection between men and women. Um, There's very little limits and it's normal. And places, and in our society, in our American society, um, men and women and boys and girls intermingle with almost no limits, um, with very little limits. So there is a huge gulf between the Jewish traditions here and our modern culture. And because of that, that can often create uncomfortable situations when somebody who follows the halacha will say that they will not be prepared to shake hands even with someone of the opposite gender. So what are we allowed to do what are we not allowed to do? When? Can we shake hands? Can we not shake hands? So one of the central principles of Judaism is family values. Family values is mentioned in this week's Parsha where as we mentioned earlier Bilam, in his Blessings of Israel says how beautiful Matovu O Halecha Yaakov, how beautiful are your tents, Jacob Your dwelling places Israel the Midrash says he was amazed by our family values Jews always saw marriage and raising a family at the core of our society we believe that men and women were created to find a mate and live in pairs the Torah tells us when Adam and Eve were created that a man and woman are meant to leave their home, their family they grew up in, and find a mate and live together and become a single person. Vayula Basarach had become a single person. Life was created to live with a partner. That's how God created us. We were also meant to create and raise children together within the safety and the structure of the marriage. And so having a Jewish a marriage and a family unit and living within that unit has been a central core of Judaism. And that's something that Jews have kept to throughout our history. The Midrash on this week's Parsha tells us, quoting a verse in um, Shir Hashirim in Song of Songs, the other nations call to us and they say live like us. We don't have such strict family rules and we say, no, this is our tradition, this is our culture, this is the way we have lived, this is the key to, our, to Judaism, one of the principles of Judaism is the family structure that we live in. And while the other nations of the world and other cultures have admired our family structure and even tried to emulate it, most of them have not done so very successfully. An amazing thing that we know today um, is that throughout much of history, while most societies had some sense of marriage and family, throughout history most children in most cultures were born out of wedlock, outside of a family and raised outside of a family. That was true in the United States in every single period of our history. That was true in Europe. That was true in most cultures. Not all, but most of the time in most cultures, Jews. It was while it did exist, it was extremely, extremely rare. In fact, today we have DNA evidence um, from measuring the paternal line that Jews can met, can accurately know who their fathers, grandfathers, great grandfathers were, going all the way back. And we know now that those traditions, are essentially who we claimed our fathers were, is actually true, which is not true in most other societies, and it's unique among the Jewish people. We've really kept, not entirely, but by and large, a very strong family structure. Now, and that is one of the principles of Judaism. We believe that human sexuality And the human, natural human attraction to the other gender was created by God as the glue to hold together, to create, and then hold together the holy and important institution of marriage. And so, not only is marriage holy and crucial and the basis of our Jewish life, but... Our sexual drive and our attraction to the opposite gender that holds together that creates the marriage and holds together that marriage is holy as well. Some time ago we did a class about sexuality in Judaism where we spoke about the holiness of sexuality and the sexual acts are a holy moment, a powerful moment, how God is with us in our bed at that moment. So to hold together, and we did a class about it, and you can um, listen to the podcast if you want to learn more about that, if you forgot the details. So to hold, to hold together this important institution of marriage, the Torah gives us a number of rules to keep away from any sexual interactions outside of our marriages. These rules together are called arayos or arayot. Arayos, among other things, include bans on adultery, on on incest, on relations with a woman who has had her menstrual cycle before she's gone to the mikveh, which is even our own wives, but definitely a woman who we're not married to, so the Torah tells us that in all of these prohibitions, essentially relations with, between men and women outside of marriage, all of these prohibitions, not only is sex forbidden, but any form of closeness or affection between the couple, between the, a man and woman outside of marriage is forbidden. Our sages went further and extended this prohibition. Is not only that having, not only is sexual relations forbidden, any form of attraction is forbidden, any form of, uh, any form of, sorry, um, closeness or affection, hugging and kissing is forbidden. But our sages went further and extended this prohibition to any physical touch between people, between someone of the opposite gender, between two people of opposite genders, are, is for outside of marriage and immediate family, they made an exception, is forbidden. They also forbade us from ever being alone with one of the arayos, a member of the opposite gender whom we are not married to. They forbade us from being alone with them or showing any affection, is a biblical prohibition, or even touching. There is an exception only for immediate family. For, only for immediate family members, of course one spouse, and also for grandparents and grandchildren. But beyond that, any other relations, aunts, uncles, cousins, our sages forbade any form of, uh, the Torah forbids any form of, Affection, showing affection to them. And our sages went further and forbade any form of even touching. Direct skin-to-skin contact. And they further forbade any even being alone with them. The arayos, these forbidden relations, are considered one of the three cardinal sins in Judaism. Alongside murder and idol worship. The Torah tells us that we have to be, we have to transgress any mitzvah in order to save a life. If a life is in danger, we will desecrate the Shabbos to save a life. We will eat non-kosher to save a life or transgress any prohibition of the Torah in order to save a life when a life is in danger with three exceptions. One cannot transgress these three cardinal sins in order to save a life. We, when threatened, we cannot worship idols in order to save our life. If someone says, convert to Christianity or I will kill you, as our ancestors were threatened throughout history, we say, kill me. And so have our ancestors done throughout their, our history. And we'll talk about this um, we in a couple weeks when we do a class, we're going to do a class on the expulsion of Jews from Spain. And we've spoken about it before when we did a class on the Crusaders. But whenever we were threatened not to worship, to wor- to worship idols or convert to another religion or give up our lives, we give up our lives. Because idol worship is one of the cardinal sins of Judaism. In the same way, we have to be prepared to transgress, our, to give up our lives, not to kill someone. Someone says, kill someone else or I'll kill you. Kill me, I will not kill another person. In the same way that we have to be prepared to give up our lives, not to worship idols or kill someone, the third cardinal sin is arios, forbidden relations. We must be prepared to give up our lives, not to transgress the prohibitions of arios. Not only must we give up our lives to avoid any sexual relations with someone forbidden to us, But even to avoid touching or showing affection to someone we are forbidden to touch or show affection to, we must be prepared to give up our lives not to do so. Maimonides gives the example. Say someone is deathly ill. They're sick because they really want, they have an attraction to a particular man or woman, and their attraction that they cannot, that uh, is making them sick, to the point that they're going to die, you can feed them non-kosher to save their life. You can desecrate Shabbos to save their life. But we won't allow them to have relations with this woman, or even touch this woman, even if she is okay with it and wants it. If the Torah forbids it, even if this individual will die otherwise, it is forbidden to do so. Let them die rather than transgress the prohibitions of the prohibitions of our The Sexual prohibitions or the gender prohibitions of the Torah, and so it is a cardinal transgression on par with idol worship and murder. Any of the sexual pro- prohibitions in the Torah. Yes, Debbie. Um, as far as like converting, instead of them killing you, can you just say, "Okay, I'll convert"? But no, you, you cannot. cannot really convert. No, afraid. even verbally, you are forbidden from. You are forbidden from even pretending to convert to another religion. We'll talk about it when we do a class on, yes, we'll talk about it when we, we have to, we should do a class on Martin too. Uh, maybe we did one, I don't remember. But we will talk about it when we do the class in a couple weeks on um, the expulsion from Spain. We'll talk more about that. Are you forbidden to do anything, any to transgress any of the Torah's sexual prohibitions to save a life? You're forbidden. If, if, it, if it requires you to transgress one of the other cardinal prohibitions. You're forbidden to do it, yes, absolutely. You're forbidden to do it even if your life is in danger. You're forbidden to do so. Yes, Carol? If a man shaking hand with a woman... I'll get the details of shaking hands. I didn't get there yet. I'm giving oh. you some general info so far. Yes, Annette? So you couldn't hug your son-in-law? No. I couldn't hug son. No. 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 That's forbidden. And that would be a very severe prohibition. But you can hug like, like a little kid? Like, have you won't get a child who is pre puberty is not included in these prohibitions. Oh, I can't. I can't. Yes. <laughs> In Judaism, we recognize that God created all people with a natural attraction to the opposite gender. Now that is both a very good thing and a very bad thing at the same time. It is good, which is why God created it, because that attraction is what allows us to find our match, to find our partner in life, because we're attracted to them, and allows us to be drawn to them. That attraction both creates the relationship that we, or relationships that we have in life, And it cements those relationships in life. It holds them together with that attraction that we have to each other. Um, And of course, it allows us to procreate and have children within that marriage. But that attraction that God created for us to be able to find a partner, which is key to life, people were created to live in pairs, as I mentioned earlier, as the Torah tells us, that, that attraction also leads us to be attracted to mem- people of the opposite gender who are not meant for us. Who are not our spouse, who are not our partner. In Jewish tradition, we recognize that there are these two sides of our natu- natural sexuality that there is this positive side it was created by God in order for us to find a partner in life and create a relationship and hold that relationship together. We also recognize that that attraction to someone whom we cannot either create a relationship with or to anyone if we're in a relationship, to anyone else, recognizing, we recognize that there is this negative side to it. And we have to be very aware of it because the sexual attraction that a person has is one of the strongest parts of our personality, one of the strongest parts of our nature. It's very powerful. You can see that from popular culture, how much they take advantage of human sexuality, putting it in every single, um, every single form of entertainment because people are drawn to it. That is our nature but it's a very strong part of our nature. We recognize there are two sides to it. There is a positive side, and the reason why we have it, in order to allow us to create and retain a partnership for which we were created. Humans are meant to live in partners. And at the same time, we recognize it also creates an attraction to other people who are are not meant to be our partners. Our Western culture has created a myth that somehow humans have the ability to turn (coughs) on and off their sexual attraction at will. You could turn it on and off whenever you want. We all know that is not true. In modern culture, a person is expected to spend time with members of the opposite gender, especially in the years of adolescence, when their natural attraction to the uh, to the opposite gender is very strong. So they're expected to socialize together, be friends together, but just friends. To touch, to kiss, to dance, and not feel any attraction whatsoever. That's what you're expected to do in society. And then, when you find somebody with whom you want to build a a a relationship of attraction, then suddenly to turn that on just for that individual while keeping it off for everybody else. That is what our modern culture expects of our children, of adults. The reality is that it's not true. We naturally feel attraction to the opposite gender. It's a natural part of who we are. Especially, it's much stronger when we are younger what happens is we force ourselves to unnaturally suppress that attraction. Sometimes people do that successfully, sometimes not so successfully, which is why there are all these problems that arise sometimes where, um, where um, people uh, end up having um, a, a tra- a, a, a having. Um, interactions that are perhaps unwanted. Sometimes one side wants it, one side doesn't. Sometimes both want it, but maybe it's not right for them. Perhaps they're in another relationship, or maybe they're too young. Um, but so, so sometimes it leads to people pretending they don't have any attraction, but they do. Sometimes it will, it will indeed lead to people who will try to suppress their attraction. And people will honestly say that they don't feel any attraction to friends of the other gender. We are just friends. And even if they touch, kiss, and dance, they still, they are just friends. And that may sometimes be true, but what that means is that the individual has suppressed their natural healthy sexuality. If you've suppressed your natural healthy sexuality, you're not going to be able to easily just turn it back on. We don't, humans don't have the ability to turn our sexual feelings on and off at will. And so what happens if is, if a person does suppress that, it will make it harder for them to feel attracted to somebody who can be their partner in life. It will be harder for them to find a partner. If they have a partner, it will be harder for them to feel attraction to their partner. So even if a person can, to some extent, suppress their natural sexual feelings, we don't have the ability to turn it on and off at will. Once suppressed, it becomes hard to reignite. So Judaism recognizes that sexuality and our natural attraction to the opposite gender is a good and positive thing given to us by God for one of the most important things that we need to do to find a partner and live life as a pair, live life with that partner. One of it's a central to central to our role as people. God, the Torah tells us we were created to live with a partner, to live in pairs, to live with them, to live married. So, we were given this natural sexuality in order to find this partner and live with them. But we understand at the same time it has, there is that natural sexual feeling also can be used negatively because it will also express itself to others who are not meant to be our partner or not our partners, who have partners of their own. So rather than suppress it In order to socialize and interact with others to whom we do have a natural attraction, the Torah tells us we should avoid any sexualized encounters or even any close encounters with these people, with someone of the other gender. And therefore, as I mentioned earlier, the Torah forbids us from showing any physical affection, such as hugging, kissing to anyone from the opposite gender outside of our spouse and our immediate family. Not only because it may lead to even greater sexual acts, but because it itself is an unhealthy sexual attraction. It itself, the actual hugging, kissing, or touching in an affectionate way, itself is an unhealthy sexual act that is unhealthy for us, unhealthy for but for both of the people involved, because if it's outside of a healthy relationship with a partner, because it um, in either we are suppressing our sexuality in doing so, or we are expressing it in an unhealthy way, one of the two. Either way, it's not a good idea. Victor, you had a question. No. Very good question. So the Torah prohibits us, as we mentioned, anyone outside of our um, spouse, partner, um, and outside our immediate, of our immediate family. We are forbidden from hugging, kissing, or showing any physical affection. Our sages went further and forbade us from even touching someone of the opposite gender, outside of our spouse and immediate family, um, and grandparents to grandchildren as well as an exception. Um, and touching even in an unaffectionate way, just touching direct skin-to-skin contact, is forbidden. Our sages forbade it in any sense. Now, to be clear, not only is physical affection forbidden under Torah law, not only is physical affection such as hugging, kissing, touching in an affectionate way forbidden, but any form of flirting would be forbidden. Any form of trying to arouse somebody else sexually, or showing an attraction to somebody, would be forbidden. Under the same prohibition of the Torah, it's one of our 613 commandments, erva. do not show any affection to a man or woman who is forbidden to you. Our sages took it a step further and said, don't touch directly somebody, even if it's not in an affectionate way. Um, According to some, according to Maimonides and some the, it's actually, the touching is also a Torah prohibition. I'll get back to that in a moment. There are some exceptions to this rule of not touching. If someone is doing something professionally in a professional setting for a particular purpose, for example, a doctor or a nurse in a professional setting, are touching firstly as part of their job, so they're doing it as a, in a professional setting, and they're doing it for a particular purpose, then th- that was not included in the prohibition. So a doctor or nurse can touch someone of the opposite gender. There is further an exception to help somebody who is in trouble. So for example, if someone fell down, then um, you can help them get up. You are touching them, to help them for a particular purpose that is definitely not um, not affectionate, but just to help them. That is definitely permitted, not only permitted, required. We are required to help somebody who falls down, to help them get up. The Talmud says further, definitely if somebody is in danger, we shouldn't pay attention to their gender when trying to save them. The Talmud calls somebody a fool if they see a a man who sees a woman drowning and doesn't jump in to save her, right? That would be a fool, right? Because while, while, to be clear, we are supposed to give up our lives or allow someone to die not to transgress the biblical prohibition of showing affection to somebody forbidden to us, this is not a case of showing affection. Here you are saving them. Here we are only transgressing the rabbinic prohibition of not touching somebody, and you are only doing it to save them. So that is, so in such an instance it is forbidden. Um, again, the prohibition is only touching skin to skin, sitting next to somebody on an airplane, on a bus, where you are going to be, you're, you will uh, end up touching them, but definitely there is no affection there, and you, are, you don't want to touch them. But you will touch them. There's no prohibitions whatsoever, since your just your clothing is touching their clothing. Nothing wrong with that at all. But other than those exceptions, we should avoid touching people of the other gender, outside of our spouse and immediate family, even if it is casual and there's no affection involved in the touching whatsoever. Yes, Louise. Verbally, there's no prohibition to verbally compliment somebody. Now, to be clear, one should not compliment someone, uh, someone of the other gender who you are forbidden to, one should not compliment them in a way that would imply some sort of attraction. For example, it would be wrong for a man to tell a woman you're beautiful. Um, That is inappropriate. It's wrong. Um, most women, I don't think, would even appreciate it. Um, well, I'm, wrong about that. I'm wrong about that. Okay. okay. Well, I, I know today, in the, today, with the, today with the Me Too movement, a lot of women have expressed their dislike for the men commenting on their clothing and on their looks and the like. Um, I, I, I might be wrong about that. So one issue Well, you've got to make a judgment if it is casual or if it shows some sort of, some form of flirting. If it's flirtatious, then it's forbidden. If it's not flirtatious, it's fine. I have a question. Yes. Like, Judah and Tamar. Okay. Was that an exception? No, it was wrong. So one issue that came up in the 19th century Western Europe, in Western culture there began this norm that when people would meet they would offer hands to each other and they would shake hands. And so there was this question the 19th century already, um, is it okay a woman or a man offers you their hand. Um, it's the way people greet each other in modern times. Um, I don't know how it began or why it began, but that became the normal, the norm. And so in the 19th century it was normal throughout Europe for people to shake hands. Is it okay to shake hands? So there were some rabbis, this is mostly German rabbis, who said well touching a woman in a casual in." Uh, in a casual sense, not in an affectionate sense, um, is a rabbinic prohibition, um, a clear rabbinic prohibition, but is a rabbinic prohibition. Um, Now there is also a biblical prohibition not to embarrass another person. And so therefore they argued that the biblical prohibition of not embarrassing somebody would be, take precedence over the rabbinic prohibition of not touching somebody of the other gender. And therefore they said it is okay if someone offers you their hand to shake their hand to avoid embarrassing them itself a biblical prohibition were forbidden from embarrassing people. Um, so this there was such a view in the 19th century um, <coughs> there are perhaps some rabbis today that still accept that view. In this view you would only be allowed to shake hands with someone of the opposite gender if offered. Not that you would offer your hand to somebody else, but if they offer you their hand, you could shake it. However, most halachic scholars of the time and today disagree. Firstly, according to some, in the view of Maimonides, not touching is not a rabbinic prohibition, but it's actually a biblical prohibition. Furthermore, it is considered more than just a regular rabbinic prohibition. It is a biblical prohibition that is an addition to a cardinal transgression, a cardinal sin. One of the transgressions for which, one of the rules in Judaism for which one must be prepared to give up their life. So even though it is only a rabbinic prohibition, it is a very very severe rabbinic prohibition. And therefore in the view um, of uh, most scholars, most, um, most rabbis, even if a woman offers you her hand and refusing it would embarrass her, or a man offers you his hand and refusing it would embarrass him, even so, and you would be by extent causing embarrassment to another person, which we should generally avoid at all costs, even so the prohibition of not touching another person is more important and therefore we should refuse to shake their hand, and you could do so in a casual in a nice way, apologize, explain that we don't shake hands, Um, you may still, or likely will still embarrass them, but even so, um, this thing, again, there are views that it is okay in event that otherwise you would embarrass somebody, but most halachic scholars are of the view that it is forbidden. Yes, Debbie? Yeah, so the fist pub would be the same problem because you're still touching. the yeah, elbow? it's not the same the- as <laughs> It's like a quick... Just to acknowledge that you're not... Maybe. Um, the... <laughs> one thing, one good thing perhaps that COVID has given us is that I think it has ended, or at least to a large part, ended the shaking hands norm. Today, it's very normal for people to refuse to shake hands with anyone. Um, and so uh, that maybe that's a good thing that COVID has... Given us. So today there are some rabbis that, halachic scholars, that permit shaking hands when offered, only when offered, but most religious Jews will not do so because the vast majority of halachic scholars forbid it. I have two questions. Um, one is that if shaking hands is seen as a sign of affection, it's not seen as a sign of affection. No, no. The, Bib- the Torah prohibits any form of affection, it is a biblical prohibition of lotikrivul le galot erva. A form of affection would be touching affectionately, kissing, hugging, flirting. That is forbidden. That is a biblical prohibition of harayos, and one must give up their life rather than do so. Not touching is a rabbinic prohibition that our sages forbade to keep us from getting too close to. People forbidden so to us. It is not affection. Oh. No, we are talking about shaking hands casually. If you are touching somebody's hands affectionately, that is absolutely forbidden in all circumstances. Even if your life is in danger. Oh, but shaking hands is just forbidden. A... Oh, okay. Yes. Right. The, the, the issue is if it is casual, there is no affection whatsoever. You are simply casually shaking someone's hand. That's an excellent question. Um, I don't know, I believe we know today that most um, viruses spread um, through the air, through aerosols. I don't. But Jews generally had better um, hygiene. I mean, we did men touch men and women touch women, but we had better hygiene. And so we did better in plagues. We once did a class on Jews and plagues, plagues in Jewish history. So not only does the Torah ban touching between genders, it also forbids men and women who are not married and not immediate relatives to ever be alone together. It also forbids as we mentioned earlier, any form of flirting or attempting to attract somebody of the other gender. We are forbidden from going alone into an office with someone of the opposite gender. Forbidden from staying in a home or in a room alone with them. A doctor while a doctor may touch a patient in a professional setting, that's it's for a purpose, and they're a professional, but they may never be alone with a patient. There's never a need for that. They must always have someone else in the room. That has always been the Jewish law, that a doctor may never be alone, for that matter, in the workplace. You may never be alone in a room with a co-worker. Today, thanks to the Me Too movement for the la- in the last couple years, we recognize that while society for decades has pretended that men and women can work together and socialize together without any sexual encounter or flirtation, today we know that there was a lot of unwanted sexual interactions in the workplace, and there is. And it was pushed aside, and it was hidden, and it was ignored, but it existed, and not only in the workplace, even in the medical offices. Today, just about every medical office has a policy of a male doctor not being alone, or female doctor not being alone with a member of the other gender in a room. It's standard policy in every single medical setting today, but it's something that only came about the last couple of years. In Jewish law, we always had that. In reality, there's always been a lot of unwanted sexual interaction between in medical settings there's been a lot of stories recently in professional settings in school settings in and many other settings there's been a lot of unwanted sexual interaction where people felt they wouldn't be believed or they would harm their job or whatever if they came forward there's also which has not been as much impacted by this Me Too movement. There has also been a lot of consensual sexual interaction or flirtation in the workplace, in social settings, and in schools. And often that consensual interaction creates a lot of harm to the individuals involved, whether because they have another partner, they are married, and it causes strain on their marriage, or because they are too young and not in position to be involved in a consensual sexual sexual relationship, um, but it often causes a lot of problems. Often people, even if they're single, and do things that they later come to regret. So today we understand that people don't need to actually have sex in order to cause harm. Even touching or flirting somebody in an unwanted way, or in a way perhaps that they consent to at the time, but is not good for them, Can cause harm. The Torah has always forbidden that. The Torah always recognized that we don't have the ability to turn on and off our um, sexual attraction at will. It doesn't exist. The Torah always recognized that every person is naturally and it is healthy to have an attraction to the opposite gender. And therefore, we have to be careful, not that we should ignore the opposite gender entirely, but we should be careful in that, firstly, for young adolescents, where they are not married, they don't have an outlet, and they um, are too young to create, um, they are too young to have healthy sexual relations, and, um, for yo- and they have very strong, attractive feelings. For young adolescents, we keep them entirely separated and we have throughout Jewish history. And even for adults, um, which we don't need to be entirely separated, we still avoid any show of affection. Even if it is what today they call a casual show of affection, a casual kiss. Which either either you are suppressing your sexual feelings, which is unhealthy, or it is an unhealthy sexual act. One of the two. And either way it is not good. And so the Torah has always forbidden that. Forbidden any form of um, affection between somebody outside of one's spouse and an an immediate family of the opposite gender. And forbidden any form of flirtation or even being alone together has always been forbidden by Torah law. Our sages say I'll take questions in a moment. I'll say just say that in every society there will be people who break the rules of our rights. The Talmud says in a very, very, um, perhaps still relevant statement that I think holds true today, even though the Talmud said it more than 1,500 years ago. The Talmud says in every society there will always be a small number of people who will transgress the prohibitions of forbidden relationships. There will always be a large number of people who will transgress rules of theft. And most people, and almost everyone, will transgress the prohibitions of speaking bad about others, gossip. So I think that remains true very much today um, in our society. and uh, uh, it remains true to some extent. But every society has people who break the rules of our rights. And that's because we have this strong natural attraction to the opposite gender. And we're drawn to people, and we're especially, the Talmud says, quotes the uh, verse in Proverbs, gnovim yim taku, um, that stolen things are sweeter than not stolen things. What is forbidden to you is often what we're drawn to. So because we have this strong natural attraction to the opposite gender and because we are drawn to people of the opposite gender, therefore our sages encourage men and women to generally keep a certain distance. Not only should we avoid touching, but we should avoid socializing with the opposite gender. Go out for lunch with a man or woman outside of our spouse, alone. Outside, You're not being alone with them, you're not touching them, just going at white white. Go out for lunch or go out on a date. Not a date where you're dating to build a relationship with them. A married person go out for lunch, have lunch with somebody else. Maybe in a business setting, we shouldn't do it. And that's why in many Jewish communities, and this has been true historically, social events, even celebrations, men and women are separated. Um, The rule is for weddings, um, the Torah, the halacha is that for weddings, um, men and women should be separated. For which should sit separate for weddings, and in traditional Jewish weddings, they still do. But in many Jewish communities, for other events also, the men and women are separated. And this is especially true for younger people, who, as we said, have trouble controlling their physical attraction, because it's much stronger at their age, and they don't have a partner, they don't have an outlet, and for that reason, in most Jewish communities, historically, um, boys and girls were separated, had said we had separate schools for them, separate clubs, separate social structures, um, and boys and girls that weren't related don't socialize or spend time together until they start dating for marriage. And even then, the time spent together is only with somebody whom they are dating as a perspective for marriage. Let me just finish off. I'll take questions. So we began by saying that the Torah's view of separation between men and women is perhaps the greatest gulf between Western values and Jewish values. And while in many ways Western values have learned over the years to adopt our values, and perhaps thanks to the revelations in recent years um, of what's really going on beneath the surface at schools and places of work between men and women, um, which has everyone knew of, but nobody spoke about. Um, was kind of a secret, an open secret, and now it's come out to the open thanks to the Me Too movement. Maybe culture is moving a little bit closer, only slightly, towards our Jewish traditions. However, it is hard for people who grew up outside of a traditional Jewish community that lived with men and women, boys and girls especially, being mostly separated, to appreciate the Torah's gender rules. It's also hard for Jews living within our society, our, our, our American society, to follow the Torah's rules because it sets us very far apart from society around us. It means that a lot of the social activities that involve intermingling, gender intermingling, are inappropriate for us, for Jews. The truth is, though, and it means that we have to refuse to go out to dinner with a coworker of the opposite gender, and refuse to go alone into the doctor's office, and refuse to be alone with a co-worker in their office, and many, many other not not shake hands, according to those that forbid shaking hands with the opposite gender, even though it puts people in a very uncomfortable position. So, it often makes us very uncomfortable, but it's only for the moment. It's not for the long term. Many people in our society today, in Western culture, recognize that the Western belief that you can turn your sexual attraction on and off at will is a fallacy. It is. And more and more we are recognizing under the rug all the problems of the interactions between genders, of all ages, in schools, in places of work, in In social settings and the like. And so, yes, it puts us in uncomfortable situations, and I can say for myself, it often puts me in uncomfortable situations, but those uncomfortable situations are temporary. In the long run, people respect you for it and people ultimately I believe respect me and they tell me that respect me for standing up to our Jewish principles and Jewish values even when it makes me and the people around me perhaps uncomfortable. The former president of Israel Ruven Rivlin, his chief of staff was a a religious woman by the name of Rivka Ravitz. She was the chief of staff for the president and she would of course accompany him on his various trips, meeting dignitaries and the like. Um, In fact, this is not the story I wanted to tell, but I'll pass it on anyway. When she met last year with our president, President Biden, you may have seen the picture going around, and uh, President Biden was, I guess, trying to be be cordial or friendly, and he asked her if she has children and how many children she has. and she said, I think she's a mother of nine children, and when she said that, he took a knee and bowed to her. There's a picture of it, of him bowing to her, bowing to a religious Jewish woman for having having children. But another great story with her, because it just happens if you have that kind of prominent job, things happen. So uh, a couple years ago, the president of Israel at the time, Ruven Rivlin, went to, was in Rome, and over there he had an audience with the Pope. And usually, usually when you have, you know, when dignitaries meet, there's protocols and the countries exchange protocols because, you know, different cultures have different protocols often, and they usually exchange protocols and give people advance information of what they should be doing and shouldn't be doing but somehow he didn't get the memo and so at the end of whatever it was the discussion he went around shaking hands of all the people in the um, of all the people as part, who were part of the entourage of the president and when he came to Rivka Ravitz she refused to shake his hand and she apologized she said I'm sorry um, we don't shake hands and so the Pope Still wanted to show respect, so he bowed to her. And there's actually there's a picture, you could Google it, of the Pope bowing to a Jewish woman who refused to shake hands. And I tell that story because though it makes us uncomfortable, and perhaps it's embarrassing at the moment um, when we were whether we refused to shake hands or refused to go out for dinner or refused to do other things that others refused to um, uh, refuse to do other things that the Torah prohibits that are normal in our culture and people are taken aback sometimes. But ultimately, when we are strong and keep the Torah's rules, I believe people admire us. And ultimately, they admire the Torah. And I think in the long run, as has happened with so many other things, values of our culture keep changing. Torah doesn't change. And ultimately, I think the values of our culture will circle back. And we'll come back closer, and I think we see that happening already, we'll come back to the values of the Torah.